to we'll finish up the rest of chapter 1 and get into chapter 2. But I want you to turn to chapter 2 because I want, to read, want us to read together the first five verses. Well, those will be the last verses we covered this morning, but it's probably a good place to start that kind of sets the tone for what's really going on in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and really the whole book of Judges. So if you've got Judges chapter 2 there, if you'll turn there and stand with me, let's read a few verses together and we'll pray and uh, jump in. Judges chapter 2. If you're trying to find it, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges, right before the book of Ruth. Judges chapter 2, verse 1, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, the people lifted up, lifted up their voices and they wept, and they called the name of that place Bacham, as they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, certainly this book is a highlight of man's failures. But Lord, it is certainly a highlight, Lord, of uh, your faithfulness. Lord, as your word says, that when we are faithless, Lord, you remain faithful. Lord, you cannot deny yourself, your nature, your character. Uh, Lord, we ask this morning as we study this section. Lord, we come to you with hearts that are dependent upon you, Lord, desperate for you. Uh, Lord, uh, unless you work in both the preacher and the hearers, Lord, uh, our study this morning will just be a bunch of empty words. So God, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, you would stir us up, Lord, to good works. Lord, you would help us to see Christ and him exalted. And Lord, that you would give us a love for you, that we might serve you. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. You all remember last Sunday, we started the book of Judges and we covered the first 15 verses there. And uh, for those of you who weren't with us, when you hear the word, the, you know, the, the idea of the book of Judges, you remember, we're not talking about appointed officials here. We're not talking about, you know, men that are wearing black robes and presiding over legal disputes. Uh, but in essence, these judges, and we'll get to that next week or the week after, uh, there in the latter part, the mid part of chapter 2, but these judges were deliverers. Uh, they weren't legal people. They were deliverers. They were rescuers. And uh, they, were, they were saviors, if you will, of their, uh, of, of their people from their enemies. And you see this cycle happening in the book of Judges. Uh, the people began well. They, they're serving the Lord. They're, they're obeying the Lord uh, pretty much. And, and um, they're kind of like us. And, and, but they're serving the Lord and they're obeying the Lord. And, and then, then they begin to sin against the Lord. They disobey Him and act more, more like the Canaanites than they are God's covenant people. And, 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 because of that, because of their disobedience, you know how it is that uh, God disciplines those that he loves, right? 
And so he sends the enemy in, as we've just read there. They become thorns in, the, in our sides. And he sends the enemy in, and, and they, he, they, they plunder the people. They steal from them. They take from them. They, they attack them. They abuse them. They overpower them. And then in the midst of all that mess that they brought on themselves, right, they cry out, Lord, help us. And the Lord is so merciful. He doesn't just, you know, blot them out off the face of the earth like we deserve, but he, he raises up a judge, a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior, if you will, who saves the people from, their, from the consequences of their sin and from the enemy that's overpowering them, and they drive off the enemy, whether it's an Othniel, he's the first judge, or whether it's a Gideon, or whether it's a Samson. He raises up these judges to rescue his people. And then, as you'll see throughout the book of Judges, that whole cycle happens over and over. It's like seven times it happens in the book of Judges, that same cycle. And all these different judges get raised up to help the people. Well, uh, the reason that they need these judges is because Joshua is dead, as we read last week. You know, Joshua was the one appointed after Moses to, Moses took him to the edge of the promised land. He took him from Egypt to the edge of the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to go in. Joshua let him in, and, you know, they conquered Jericho and Ai, and they began to conquer the land. And they battled throughout the land, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, and, and, and all. There were seven nations in the land that they began to, to battle against. And they seized, you know, the, the boundaries, if you will, of the promised land. And at the end of Joshua's life, one of the last things he did was he called all the tribes together and he divvied up the land to, you know, a portion to each of the 12 tribes according to their size and and uh, so all that's been done. Uh, but the problem is that after the death of Joshua, they still hadn't yet fully possessed the land. All, these seven nations, though many of the areas have been conquered, and many of the, the, the Canaanites, and, I, and I'm using Canaanites in a general term because I can't remember all the ites that are in there. So we just call them the Canaanites, okay? And you get what I mean. There's seven nations. But all of them hadn't been destroyed. All of them hadn't been eliminated. So... Um, they, though they possessed the, the, the land, or they uh, had d- divided up the land, they didn't fully possess it. They hadn't fully conquered the Canaanites in the land. So that's where we're at in the book of Judges. And they get weary along the way, and they get fearful along the way, and that's why they need God to raise up judges that will you know, drive them back to their mission at hand, which is to conquer the Canaanites. And so with Joshua gone... Each tribe was now responsible to take the initiative in completing the task to possess the land. So as he sends them home, each tribe is responsible for whatever pockets remain of resistance of the Canaanites within your boundaries, you need to deal with them. And it wasn't about, it wasn't, they weren't called to drive them out. They weren't called to displace them. They were called to eradicate them. We talked about that last week. We talked about, uh, in, even in Esther chapter 8, we talked about holy war. I don't want to go into all that, but uh, l- let, me, let me say this today about, about that. God was very, very, very patient and long-suffering with the Canaanites in the land. You remember the children of Israel dwelt in Egypt for around 400 years, and they had 40 years in the wilderness. All that time... They had to repent uh, of their sin. Uh, 
They were, they were tremendously wicked people. You can go back and read Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 18 to, to get a sense for just how wicked these people were. But they had a long time to repent. And then for those 40 years that the children of Israel traveling through the wilderness, they had heard of the Lord's renown. They had heard about how great the Lord was and, and, and calling out these people, the children of Israel, and how they had conquered the Egyptians, you know, with just a few and they had crossed the Red Sea and, and how he had cared for them. You remember Rahab? There in Jericho, she had heard about these things. And, and, uh, and of course, it brought her and her family to repentance, right, when they had heard about the, the renown, the greatness of the Lord. And, and yet, most of the people, there were a few, few people who, who trust in the Lord, but most, here they are, they remain, they're in the land, they hear about the Lord's renown, and they're like, oh, we don't care, we'll just sit here and wait and see what happens. They had no fear of God whatsoever. And so God has brought the children of Israel to the promised land because it's a land where he's going to protect them and to keep them and to preserve them because they are his chosen people who he'll bring the Messiah through. And so they've got a particular diet. They've got a particular way to worship. They've got particular, particular about everything. And God's, God's very much particular about his people. And, 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 and it's for their preservation, for their protection. But he's got to eradicate, not coexist with the enemy, but eradicate them so that the children of Israel don't become infected by them. They don't intermarry with them and thus pollute the bloodline that the Messiah would come through and there would be no Messiah. So, they seek the Lord. They're, okay, Lord Joshua's dead. What do we do? And he says, Judah, you're the biggest tribe. You go out. And so Judah is called to lead the charge and begin to eliminate the Canaanites within their borders. You know, and it's really good as I went back and reread that this week, and I thought, you know, that, that's really, it's really good that they sought the Lord there. And, and isn't that a lot like you and I? We... Um, what you see with the children of Israel is they seek the Lord. The, the, the book starts off with them, you know, they're concerned about what the Lord thinks. They're concerned about pleasing him. They're, they're concerned about um, doing what he wants them to do. So they seek him. But as the book progresses, they become less and less concerned about what the Lord thinks. And you see it in Judges chapter 17. You see it in Judges chapter 25 where, you know, every man did what was right in his own eyes. We really don't care about what the Lord thinks anymore. We think we got this. Lord, you know, we started off good. We got this now. We've been walking with you a long time. We can handle this. And I thought, you know, isn't that the temptation that you and I also deal with? The temptation... Can you look back at your own walk with Christ? Maybe even just this past week. And maybe one day this week you were like, you know, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I live for you? Lord, I need your help. You're seeking the Lord. You're, you're dependent upon the Lord. And then as the day goes on, it's usually not even a week. It usually just takes a day. Just a few hours later, you're, 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 you're confronted with some difficulty, some challenge. Uh, you know, you're, you and your, your spouse or you and a friend are in a conversation and things are getting a little tense and, and you're not looking to the Lord anymore. You're like, I got this. I can, I can handle this. You're not asking the Lord for wisdom. But we have that temptation that we deal with to be self-sufficient and to be independent of the Lord. And, you know, it's an age-old problem, isn't it? Uh, you know, to, uh, just to kind of do what we think is right in our own eyes. 
And when I say age-old problem, I mean from the very beginning. Isn't that the problem in the garden? Adam and Eve, they're walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. They got great fellowship with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're looking around, and what's happening? Satan's, I mean, you know, Eve and Eve's having a conversation with Satan. What in the world? And of course, that was Adam's failure to drive, out the, to drive Satan out of the garden, right? I mean, he thought, I, I don't know what he thought in his mind. I surely didn't think, well, this is normal to have a serpent walking around in here, and he's talking. I'm supposed to have dominion. Lord, I need to drive this thing out. And what did he do? He just let this thing coexist there. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a temptation that, uh, you know, we, we all deal with, and we see it from the very beginning as part of the fall. Well, be that as it may, as a side note, Judah, God says, Judah, you go up. And so they join forces with, uh, you know, their brother tribe, Simeon. And they, you know, the first several uh, verses there of, of chapter 1, they rout their enemies in Bezek and in Jerusalem and Hebron and, and Debir. Uh, and while they seem to be off to a good start, you remember from last week, they seem to be off to a good start, and uh, yet there's a hint early on, right in the first chapter, that they're already being Canaanized. They're already adopting, you know, pagan uh, behavior uh, into their lives. You remember they, 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 they capture... Uh, Adonai Bezek, you know, Lord of Bezek, the, you know, the, the, the mayor, the king, or whatever, the governor of Bezek, and, and, and what did they do to him? They cut off his big toes, and they cut off both of his thumbs, and, and why'd they do that? Well, that's because that's what he did. He had done that to all of his enemies. He, all these people that he had conquered, he cut off their big toes and their thumbs, so they were no longer a military threat, and, but the problem with that was that they, Instead of putting him to death, isn't that what they were called to do? They weren't called to cut off his to- toes and thumbs. They, were, they weren't call, called to maim him, to, to maim the enemy. They were called to annihilate, to destroy the enemy. You can't coexist with this guy. And so their conduct was not befitting of God's covenant people, but it was more like Canaanite behavior. And so we see him already early on in the book of Judges, being influenced more by the Canaanites than they are obeying the Lord. You know, there's always that temptation. Israel did what they thought was right. They didn't do what the Lord had told them to do, which was to destroy the enemy. But they said, you know what, uh, this, is the, what this is what he's done. This is what we're going to do to him. And they let the guy live rather than kill him. But there's always that temptation to do what we feel is right and, you know, to do what we think is right. But yet, what does the Word say? Proverbs 3, 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Why, why does it tell us not to lean, on, lean not on our own understanding? Yeah, the, the heart of man is deceitful. That's exactly right. Jeremiah 17, you've been going to Tim's group a long time. It's, it's ingrained in you. I can hear it. But that's right. I mean, our, our minds are affected by the fall. They're, they're, you know, we, we need that. We need the, I mean, that's Friday night reset. This is the word of God. We need our mind, our minds reset. We need it saturated with the, with the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word. And it goes on to say, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. That's what we need. We need to be a people that are looking to him and letting him direct our path. It says, do, it goes on to say, do not be wise in your own eyes, but that's the problem, isn't it? We're an arrogant, prideful people.
people. We think we really have the solutions and the answers. That's what they thought. They think, well, that's a pretty good idea here we got. We're going to cut off their thumbs, their thumbs and their, or their thumbs or whatever they're cutting off, but they're cutting it off and it wasn't good. But he says, it says, fear the Lord, depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. You see, the Lord doesn't want us just to, you know, uh, it's not about just obedience for the sake of obedience to his word, but it's, it's like, this is good for you. I mean, parents, we, we get that, right? And we get that now as parents who were once children and we're like, I, I had to go back to my parents several years ago when, when my kids were teenagers. I had to go back to them and I had to ask their forgiveness for what a wretched child I was and for how unthankful, my lack of gratitude toward my parents for all, for their, their patience with me, their kindness, their mercy toward me growing up. And, and, uh, you know, anyway, the things that they were asking of me to do, it would have been, it was, it was health to my flesh and strength to my bones. It was good for me, right? We get that now as parents who are raising their own teens. And as we watch our children raise their children. But so too with the Lord. The things he's asked, it's, it's for our good. He loves us. He cares for us. It's not like he's this cosmic killjoy and he just wants to rob all the fun out of your life. He's like, I want you to have a blessed life. I really want you to have a life that is filled with, with praise and adoration and, and, and joy. But this is the way. It's the way of obedience. You remember James says you're not blessed in the hearing but in the doing, right? That's where the blessing's at. Well, uh, Judah and the combined forces, uh, them with Simeon, they, uh, there in verse 16, let's turn there and let's pick up. It says that uh, they move further south down to Arad. Now, the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, you all remember, what was that, like in Numbers chapter 10? You remember his father-in-law? Hobab. Hobab was the father. And he picks him up along the way. You know, Moses marries and, uh, this Gentile woman and, and, um, uh, Hobab and he invites him to come along with him and and so these are the descendants of that uh, of that people uh, they went up from the city of Palms now what the city of Palms that would be Jericho now Jericho's been you know uh, annihilated it's 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 been devastated right when the children of Israel went over about 15 years prior to this it's wiped out the walls are down the city's gone so they obviously were were living in the surrounding cities they're like hey we don't like living among this rubble here so uh, they went into the wilderness uh, they went with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went, to, and what did they do with the enemy? Did they eradicate them? Did they conquer them? What's it say they did? They dwelt among the people. Was that what they were called to do? But here you see already, this is why you see that theme verse for the book of Judges. There were no king in those days, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Bless you. So uh, the result of Operation Desert Storm was we see the further canonization of Israel. God's covenant people becoming more like the people of the land. And that was not what the Lord had for them. He wanted them to become more like him, more like his nature, his character. So uh, still battling down in the, in the uh, Negev, down in the desert region, uh, they, in verse 17, it says, they went 
Judah went with his brother Simeon. They attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So good job. They destroyed it. So they, the name of that city was called Hormah. And from there, they head west over to the coastal region, over to the area that is occupied by the Philistines. Uh, and the Lord and uh, Judah, verse 18, took Gaza. You all, that's still the Gaza of today. Its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. From there, so they're, they're making progress. They're doing good. They take the land. Verse 19, uh, the Lord was with Judah. They drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowest. So they took the guys and the, up on the mountaintops, man, they were, whoo, we got these guys. They routed them, but they get down in the valleys and the lowland, uh, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because why? These guys had chariots of iron. These guys were battle ready. They were, uh, they were tough guys. And, and so while the tribal alliance here of Judah and Simeon had accomplished much, their state of the art military technology that was possessed by the Canaanites in that area in the lowlands, it, it was too much for them to overcome. They, they, they just couldn't compete with it. They didn't have chariots of iron. Judah didn't. I mean, they're, they're going down there with their, with their swords and with their sticks, and, but they don't have these type of military vehicles. And don't get the idea that these chariots were, when it says chariots of iron, that they were completely made out of iron. Can you imagine the horses saying, I'm not pulling this thing anywhere. But, but, you know, iron, iron was obviously there and, you know, they used it for, uh, you know, uh, the wood would have been strapped with, 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 uh, uh, iron and the nails would have been made of iron. The wheels probably would have been wrapped with iron. But but these were new innovations that the Philistines here you know possessed, and and it and it made the chariot much stronger, much more difficult to overcome. But you know the author here really isn't interested in giving you and I and giving the reader here the history of, you know, military armament, military vehicles, military equipment and hardware. I don't think that's really what his focus is about. Nor do I think that he's really thinking, well, I want to make sure my readers know that the Iron Age has arrived. We're we're in the Iron Age. I don't think that's what it's about. But he's pointing out the theological significance of the failure. Now, to you and I, it may seem reasonable that whoever has the most high-tech equipment, the most high-tech, you know, warfare equipment, they're the ones who win, right? I mean, and that's kind of the way we're programmed to think, you know, we got our air shows that happen there, which are really great because they show us, you know, where our tax dollars are going and, and they show us the military superiority of the, of the United States. And we begin to, you know, it kind of informs our brain that, man, if you got, if you spend all this money and you've got all this high tech equipment, whoever has the best toys wins, right? And we look at that with the Canaanites and we think the same thing. Yeah, you know, they had the they had the they had the best equipment. They had the most high tech stuff. No wonder Judah lost. No, no wonder uh, Simeon they, they they couldn't defeat the enemy. But we forget the theological significance here of their failure is that who had the ultimate weapon? Israel did right. They've got an omnipotent God that's behind them and has already promised them victory. If you'll just obey me, right? 
you're, you're going to be able to destroy the enemy. And he had given them specific instructions, even about the days that they would run into those who had chariots. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, he says to them, he says, this is, he's talking through Moses. They're not even in the promised land yet, but he's, he, you know, he sees the future. He knows that. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So he foresees the day, and he prepares them for the day. Listen, when you get into the land, you're not that many people. You're a couple million people, and there's, there's millions of these Canaanites throughout the land. And they've got some superior uh, hardware out there. They've got a bigger army, superior hardware. But listen, don't be afraid. The Lord's your God. I am the ultimate weapon. I am the omnipotent God. If God be for you, who can be against you, right? The scripture says. So why did they fail? They've got the ultimate weapon. They've got the Lord on their side. Well, they were either afraid or else they were satisfied with the land that they had already, that the Lord had already given them. And I think it was probably a little bit of both. You know, fear isn't always a bad thing. You, you realize that, don't you? Uh, you know, God made us with a capacity uh, to fear for good purpose. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, that, that capacity to fear. It's what keeps me from, you know, hopefully walking off the edge of this. It, it's what, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you ever gone there with your kids? And you're like, you want to stand back as far as you can from that edge, but your kids are like, they're still learning this capacity for fear. And my girls were pretty good at that. I didn't have, I didn't have to hold their hand at the Grand Canyon when they were little. Now, now my son, Jared... The fear capacity was broke or something in his brain. And, you know, so, I mean, he's flopping and flipping around the edge of it. And, but, you know, God, there's a good, it's like, boy, don't you get it? Did you, you can't just come to the edge of that and, and flop and flip off and think, this is not like, you know, jumping off the swing at home. Doesn't work that way. So God, it's, there's a good capacity there for, for fear. It's called a rational fear, right? That keeps us from, you know, touching the stove because it's hot. You know, the grandkids come over and they go out and their parents have taught them well. And even when they're going around the grill and it's not even turned on, they go, hot, hot. They know. So I don't tell them, no, it's not hot right now because that's going to confuse them. But stay away from it. But then, you know, it's like they still got to push it, don't they? What does that really mean? I had one one of my kids, and I'm going to tell you which one. But it wasn't Jared because it's usually always Jared, but it wasn't him. This is when I lived out in North Edwards, and, and uh, you know, I was out there mowing the, mowing the lawn, and, and I had, you know, the kids, the kids had come out, and Shannon probably brought me a glass of water or something, and one of my kids comes out. I mean, the lawnmower's hot. I turned it off. Well, now you know it's a girl because it's not Jared, right, because I only have three girls and a boy. So she comes out there, and I don't know what possessed her, but she just bends over and lays her forehead right on the engine. Just like, and, and it, did it burn it? You bet. But she had a big scar head for I don't know how long. But, uh, but you know, we have this, there's this, she, her rational capacity for fear wasn't working either. I mean, our kids are still developing that. But, uh, but, but, you know, there is a rational capacity for fear that's a good and it's a healthy thing. But then, then there's irrational fears that paralyze us from doing the things the Lord wants us to do, right? 
We, we have this, you know, maybe it's a, 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 an irrational fear of being hurt. So we, we shy away from relationships. We shy away from making friendships and, uh, you know, th- those type of things. Or, or maybe there's a fear of failure. So we're like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to put in for that promotion. I don't think I'm going to put in for that. Job. You know what? I think I'm just going to do all this online. I'm not even going to go and talk to them because I just know they're going to, it's going to be, I'm not going to get the job. I mean, that, that's irrational. It's, it's not, it's not right. I mean, or a fear of, you know, the fear of failure. So uh, I'm not going to go out there and play sports because I know I'm not going to be that good. Or I know that, you know, they're going to put me on the bench or I'm not going to get to play the position. All these irrational fears or a fear of people. So we don't want to go out into uh, crowds or uh, gatherings or things like that. But what does, what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, for God has not given us. See, that's irrational. He says, God's not given us a spirit of fear. That kind of irrational fear is not from the Lord. It's from the fall. He says, but God's given you a, a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And the psalmist said, this is something we taught our kids, you know, because kids have this irrational fear of a boogeyman, right? Or, or my oldest grandson, you go in there with him at night and he's scared and he's like, he's like, where are the bad men? You know, this irrational, you know, they've seen something on TV. It's bad men. He doesn't know boogeyman yet, but it's just bad men. But it's an irrational fear. And one of the things that we were we taught our kids early on, and, and Shannon would go in there and sing with them this little song, you know, it's from Psalm 56, and I'm not going to sing it or I'll scare you and you run out of here. Uh, you know, Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will put my trust, and I will not fear. What, what, what can flesh do to me, the psalmist says. So, yes, we have irrational fears. And, and what, is the, what is the remedy for that irrational fear that paralyzes and keep us, keeps us from doing what the Lord wants us to do? It's always trusting the Lord, isn't it? Yes, we have irrational fears. We, we all do. But we don't want those irrational fears to keep us, as it probably did with the children of Israel. This is irrational. Yes, they've got chariots of iron. Yes, you don't have that. Yes, they're hard to take down. But here's the remedy. We bring that fear to the Lord. And uh, when I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in you, Lord. Uh, Lord, I can't take the chariot. But Lord, you can. So I think it was probably fear. But I also think that maybe what factored into their failure here to take those who were living in the lowland and those chariots of iron and uh, is that they became satisfied they became content with what they already possessed and they just said you know what hey i'm tired i'm tired of this battle i don't i don't about you the the older i get i find that to be true I, i find it's probably not the fear that so much paralyzes me as it is being satisfied, content, and just be honest with you, I, I just get tired. I get tired of, of, the, uh, of the pursuit of holiness. I know there's more ground to be taken in my life. I, I know that I've not arrived, I've not attained. And you know that you haven't, and you know I haven't, right? And, and, and you know there are many areas in our lives that have not been subdued by Christ, that we've not yet submitted to him. And I get tired. I'm satisfied. I'm content. And maybe not so much satisfied and content. I just get tired. It's a lot of work. 
isn't it? It's a lot of energy and effort, you know, to stay on top of that. Uh, you know, uh, the, the temptation, I think, with Judah and Simeon, the, the same temptation that I have is to not work hard because I'm tired. And so I don't want to work hard in my marriage, and I become content. And let me tell you what, that's, and you think that that's really the solution? You think, well, you know, it's a little easier just to be tired and not work on it. Is that, do we find that to be true? Here's what happens is, okay, so parents, you, you, all, you all understand this. When it comes to our children, it is a lot of work to discipline our kids, right? And to try to help them to grow and train them up in the way that they should go. It takes an enormous amount of effort and energy, doesn't it? And the temptation is, you know what? Man, I'm just wore out. It would be so much easier just to let it go. I'm not going to spank them. I'm not going to discipline. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. And we think that that's really going to be a a really good solution, right? And does it work out well? No, because then they grow up to be teenagers and young adults, and you've done nothing, and now your work is a hundred times harder because you didn't do it in the beginning, right? And I find that to be true in my marriage. Is I, My thinking is wrong. I, I think, you know, I'm just tired. I, I don't want to engage with my wife in this. And I don't want to, it's not really me trying to fix my wife because I can't fix my wife. Boy, that's going to haunt me. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. I didn't mean it that way. She's not the problem. I'm the problem. How about that? Is that a little bit better way to say it? I'm the biggest problem in my home. And, and uh, my mouth and my, my, my attitude. How many of you men in here have, have the gift of making your wife feel like an idiot? I just want to see your hand. How many of you right now are lying? Go ahead and raise your hand because you're not going to raise your hand. Yeah, I've got a lot of work. But you, you get tired doing it. I mean, that, that's my point. You get, you get tired. It, it takes a lot of work. I don't want to work hard in my marriage. I, I don't want to work, you know, uh, it's, it's, it takes a lot of energy to, in relationships with, with our adult children, uh, with grandkids, um, in friendships. It takes, I mean, you know, with all my kids out of the house now, here's, here's my temptation. Just for Shannon and I, just to sit in our little, our little, our little refuge, our little cave. We've got a little den off of our bedroom. We call it our love den. It's just, I tell you, if we had a kitchen in there, we would never leave. I would have never, never a reason to leave it. But our temptation is just to sit in there and just enjoy each other and never work hard on all the other relationships. But, I'm challenged with what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Timothy, he says, you're a young man. I want you to get this now. And I want us to get this now and remind each other of this often. He says, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. He says, fight the good fight of faith. He says, lay hold of eternal life. In other words, don't give up, believers. Don't, don't give in to the lie that I just, I'm tired and I'm just, I don't, I don't want to. Have you seen Christians who have done that? And, and they're growing old. And what happens is they grow old. They, they drift far from the church. They drift, drift far from their marriage. And they just kind of coexist in their home with their spouse. They don't really have deep 
meaningful relationships. They don't have people surrounding them that are speaking in their lives and encouraging them and challenging them. Paul went on to say to Timothy in the next book, 2 Timothy 4, he says, he says this about himself at the end of his life. And I love this guy. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now listen, I don't know what it's like to be 75 or 85 years old, uh, but, but I'm thankful for examples that we have in our body here because I know you're tired. I know, I know if I'm tired at 50 and, and you're 75, you're 80, you're 90 years old, you're still coming to church, you're still doing Bible studies, you're still spending time. What, what an example, what an encouragement of the, like the Apostle Paul you all are to us and how we need you all desperately to be living that and inputting into our lives. Uh, Joe Toma out there on the softball field, what, what are you, Joe, 70 what? 75 years old. This guy is as solid as a rock. And, and, you know, and he's out there on the softball field still playing, still hitting the ball, still running. The, well, he runs the first and somebody runs the rest of the way for you. But you still, you're out. I mean, 75, I, I want, 50, I want, a, I want a designated hitter, runner. I want it all. <laughs> well, let's press on. And so that's Judah and Simeon. You know what? Let, let's, that's just a good place to stop with that challenge right there because there's no way I'm going to finish this again. And I, and I would be foolish to, to try to shove this down your throat in, in the next 10 minutes. So let's stand and pray and ask God to help us to finish this race well, church. Sometimes it's good to bless the congregation with getting you out of here early, isn't it? Because <laughs> I abuse you the other way so often. Father, Lord, I just want to thank you lord this morning for this group of people that you have surrounded me with lord thank you lord for the testimony of these saints lord um, thank you for so many our young people lord who are fighting the good fight trying to lay hold lord of eternal life and the walk with you Lord, um, thank you for our older people who have gone before us and fought many more battles than we have, Lord, and are still fighting the good fight. Lord, and uh, Lord, what an example of perseverance they are to us. Lord, thank you that you have knitted this church family together in such a way, Lord, um, we need each other. Lord, we ask, Lord, this morning, as much as we need each other, Lord, we need you even more. We thank you for the perfect example of Christ, Lord, who uh, fought the good fight. He lived the perfect life, and uh, Lord, he was faithful to the end. And yet, Lord, he even remains faithful, Lord, to this day through the resurrection. And Lord, how... Just as you call us to persevere, Lord, how relentless you are in pursuing, Lord, your people. Drawing us close to you. And Lord, how faithful you are in the midst of our faithlessness. How merciful and kind you are. Lord, we want to finish this race well. We want to live, Lord, uh, for you. We want to conquer, Lord, those areas in our lives that uh, have not yet been subdued. Uh, Lord, we can't do that on our own, nor do we want to try. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise in your word. It is you who works in it, both to will and to do for your good pleasure. So, Lord, we're asking 
we're, we're coming to you today uh, confessing, Lord, our failures, our sins, our weaknesses, our struggles, our temptations. And Lord, our simple request is this. Lord, would you, for the sake of your name, for the glory of Christ, would you work in us, Lord, both to will and to do for your pleasure? Would you help us, Lord, to fight the good fight, to subdue those areas in our lives that aren't pleasing to you? Would you help us, Lord, to be your children that would obey you, knowing that you always know what's best for us? We ask, Lord, these things for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake, Lord, of a watching world around us that uh, desperately needs the hope of the gospel. May we, Lord, be witnesses to that and testimonies that uh, uh, shine a light, Lord, in this dark world. We ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 All right, Lord willing, we'll finish it up uh, sometime.